0: Today, what you're going to see is the revelation of the authentic. Amen? So, you're going to see some comparisons in 14 that kind of reference back to 13 in an opposite manner. Um, a reaper is a harvester. Uh, it's one who reaps uh, crops in a field. Uh, some of you are older generation and you would be familiar uh, with farming techniques, I think we've modernized so much in America specifically, the way that we grow our crops, preserve our food and things like that, that we've really lost sight of this. But back in the day and in the real day, the biblical times, everybody that lived back then was very familiar with agriculture. If I were to, I think I, I think I can peg who's going to raise their hand in this room today. Sam thought I was going to ask who was alive back in biblical times. <laughs> Sam, stop it! He just started giggling. I was like, I could read your mind from here, buddy. All right, listen. If I had you raise your hand, how many of you have a garden at home that you tend? I knew those three, four hands that would go up. Okay, y'all have some. I, I haven't, I haven't gotten anything from that garden in a little while. Okay. Um, anyway, you're supposed to bring it to the priest. That's what the Bible says. Hey. Perfect. Jalapeños? Nope. Habaneros? No. <laughs> okay, we're going to talk about it later then if you <laughs> Poblano, ooh, Poblano peppers. See, this is what it's all about. This is why I love church. Okay, but a reaper is a harvester, and there's only a handful of us that have a garden or have tended a garden. Um, I don't think houseplants really um, matter in the grand scheme of things. They don't have a crop. Uh, don't, Don't get mad at me. Just listen to where I'm headed, okay? Your houseplants are pretty. I'm just saying, if we're talking about reaping a harvest... We are talking about a crop, something that produces fruit that you eat or vegetables and that kind of thing. In Revelation chapter 14 today, you're going to hear some agricultural references um, and you just need to be aware of those. In fact, we live in a very agricultural state. How many of you have ever been to the Ag Museum over in Jackson? Okay, um, I looked up a stat which I found really interesting that kind of helps give some context today. Here in Mississippi as of 20. Um, 2022, over 10 million acres of land was being actively farmed in Mississippi. And the total land mass of Mississippi is 31 million acres, which means that we have over 32% of our land is dedicated to farming, whether it's animal farming or crop farming, things like that. And I'm sure that's varied from time to time and gone up and down. But that's an amazing statistic to think about. We are in a farming state for sure. Um, I was with a friend of mine yesterday out on 300 acres uh, that I hunt on. And um, went out there just to go shoot some guns and uh, that kind of thing. And ended up getting some work done as well. And uh, we had to get a giant uh, disker attached to a giant John Deere tractor. Um, It was quite a feat. Uh, I've never done it before, connecting all the things. It was hard work. I swept my brains out for just the 20 minutes that we were out there working. And it had me have a deeper appreciation for all the work that goes into farming, producing a crop. So I want you to think about that today as we're talking about the reaper who we will see in Revelation 14 in just a minute. I want you to go with me to Galatians first. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. There's a lot of agricultural language in the Bible and tons of references. Um, I want you to think about this. Uh, Paul writes to the church, uh, the group of believers we call Galatians. And when he does so, he says this, Do not be deceived. So don't, don't get tricked. God will not be mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And then verse 8 goes on to say, this is my paraphrase, but you can read it on the screen. If you sow in the flesh, that is to say, if you invest in the flesh or the fleshly desires, then you will obviously reap the, the after effects, consequences of it. You'll reap what the Bible calls here in this translation, corruption or death. But to the one who sows in the spirit, From the Spirit, they will reap eternal life. So that means that it's talking to me about a spiritual principle there. That if I'm focused on me, myself, and I, and doing things that are according to the old man nature, the sin nature then I will reap the consequences of that. If I am focused on investing in the spiritual aspect of my life, and I'm starting my day off with time with the Lord, I'm focusing on Him in the times that I have conversation with people, I'm trying to be a light in my workplace, in my family, and those things. As I do that, I will be reaping benefits that are of an eternal reward. Not a punishment, but a reward. Amen. The truth is, the law of sowing and reaping is universally true. Now, I want you to really understand that. It's a simple statement, but it, it, I want to unpack it for you a little bit and help you understand. The law of sowing and reaping that God has instituted in the universe has been true from our very beginning, and it affects every single aspect of your life. There is nowhere that you can hide from this law of sowing and reaping. Talking about agriculture, if you plant apple seeds and do it the right way, you'll have apple plants that turn into apple trees that give you more apples. If you plant a tomato seed, that'll produce tomatoes and more tomato seeds and more plants. It doesn't do something outside of its kind. There's something else to be said there, but I don't have time for that message today. Some of you might get it. The law of sowing and reaping though has non-agricultural aspects like in your finances. It's got real quiet, but it's okay. You're just absorbing the knowledge. Like in your friendships, in your marriage, in your career. You say, well, they don't pay me enough to do all this work. Well, let me just tell you those good employees that do the extra work and go the extra mile, I'm telling you, What you sow, you will reap. You may not see it right here and now in this very moment when you spend the extra time and overtime. But you will see it, and not just in a paycheck, but maybe in an actual elevated position in the future. Or something where God demonstrates his favor towards you. You will see a benefit somehow, some way, because sowing and reaping works. It works mentally and emotionally too. Listen to me. I know we're going into Revelation 14, but you've got to hear this today. I developed a whole secondary message, and I'm not going to preach that one to you, but I'm going to tell you this. What you listen to is being sown into your life, into your mind. So the music choice that you have, the gossip The friend that you hang out with that always has something bad to say about somebody else. Listen, if they say something bad about somebody else every time they talk to you, guess what they're doing when you are not with them? (laughs) Steer clear. My wife and I had a conversation this week that was mind opening or, you know, the light bulb came on for her. And she just realized, you know what? There's this person that I, I really do love this person, but I've, I'm going to have to be very careful around this person because I recognize there's something else going on deeper. She doesn't want that sown in her life. Can, I, can she get a round of applause? That's good. That's a good example and a good model. That's the same way we should be. Teenagers choosing the, the music that they listen to. Knowing that what is getting heard and listened to is being sown in them. Listen, it happens emotionally too. You cannot sow anger and expect to receive joy. You can't do it. So there's nobody named Karen, hopefully physically present here today. But the Karens of the world, okay, that's a term, a derogatory term for somebody who's always mad about everything and complaining... The Karens of the world cannot expect to receive joy as their harvest when all they've ever sown is bitterness, resentment, grudge holding, all that stuff. And it's not just a gender thing specific to women. You've heard your pastor talk about that too. Uh, Karens and Chads, okay, Chad or Clark or whatever you want to call the man version of Karen, they exist too. So you can't reap joy when all you've sown is anger and resentment. It's an unchangeable truth. The context of this is important. The one who created the universe and the world in which you currently live, he has sown a harvest that he is coming back to reap. He is the reaper. So, surely... God who created us and our world. He is the rightful reaper of it because he has authority over it as the creator. Go with me and look right before we get into Revelation 14 because this is helping build that context for you. Joel chapter 3. It will be on your screen in just a second. Joel chapter 3. Joel prophesies in Joel chapter 3 and it's God speaking through him saying these words, these are some older words that we don't use all the time, but let me just give you English, easy English. Hurry up and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I, talking about God, I will sit to judge the surrounding nations. Verse 13, here's some more agricultural messaging for you. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread, for the wine press is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. Joel, by God's assistance, Joel is writing this down, and communicating it to us through the ages, God had a specific word that said, I am coming back, I am going to redeem my people, and I am going to punish the evildoers, and I will sit in judgment with a sickle to harvest the earth that is ripe. The sickle and, uh, another farming tool is the scythe, um, scythe, um, they are interesting articles that are used on in old farms and probably still today a little bit i've got a picture that i wanted to show you you might recognize the shape of this being from a communist nations flag okay it's one it's part of their image is the sickle and the hammer okay it would be handheld and you would go through a wheat field and wheat grows 6 7 feet tall if it's really abundant and healthy and hardy or kind of shorter, and they would have these reapers that would come through and cut them. Does anybody remember, I listened to the song again this week, just to remind myself. Does anybody remember bringing in the sheaves? Okay, I got a couple of hands. I remember that hymn we used to sing. Bringing in the sheaves, talking about going out to the field and harvesting. If you've been a believer for any period of time, that agricultural reference is in your head too because you hear the words in the New Testament that the harvest is ready, talking about the world, but that the laborers, the people holding these things, are few. That's still true in every church, (laughs) right? And we're 100% active in this church, but we could always use more workers, amen? So here's the idea. As we talk about this, I want to also tell you, because it's, it's going to reference vats of a wine press and things like that in Revelation 14. I want to show you what a wine press looked like. <laughs> I don't know if you're a fan of I Love Lucy, but when I was a kid, I watched every episode. Uh, I think she's probably one of the funniest women who's ever lived. I mean, she just hilarious. And if you're thinking what I'm thinking, when I think about a wine press, did anybody see that episode where she's stomping on the grapes? Um, she did an interview later on in life before she passed, and there was a language, a real language barrier, and they had a, a translator helping the Italian woman that was stomping the grapes with her. And they knew that there was supposed to be a fight, but that Italian actress who was there actually took it really further than they wanted to and like shoved her deep down in the grapes. And she was crying out for help off camera. Once they cut the scene saying, this woman's going to drown me, get me out of here. Cause she was like, you're not going to hit me like that. Anyway, I thought of that because the wine press, here's what a wine press in ancient Israel might've looked like. Now these are, uh, this is a drawing that's on a Bible software that I use for research And, uh, they've been excavated throughout the Middle East and in the old ancient world. This is what they did. They'd bring the barrels. Uh, wheelbarrows and wheeled, um, you know, trailers, sort of thing of grapes, drop them into where you see the two figures standing and they would begin to use their dirty, nasty feet to stomp on those grapes. And then they would have the juice. It was at a slant and the juice would go down and then they'd collect it by getting jars and dipping it out. They'd seal the jars and then you'd have wine. If you didn't seal it fast enough, then you'd have vinegar. <laughs> So, the idea is that they crush the grapes like that. We've definitely come way far from that process. But there is a wine press, the Bible references in Revelation 14, of God's wrath. Where the grapes of wrath, have you ever heard that phrase? Where they will be pressed and crushed. Listen to me, and I'm giving away the end. The enemy of God and everyone who works for him and who has been influenced by him, who has rejected God, will be crushed beyond recognition. That's good news. That's good news to us who are not those people. But it's also uh, an alarming word to us to make sure that we reduce that number. And the way we do that is sharing the true good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 14 verse 1. Then I looked, this is John the Apostle writing, I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now the 144,000 that are here are the same 144,000 that we read in Revelation chapter 7. This is them appearing again. And the lamb who was slain earlier in Revelation, we hear him talking or them talking about the lamb who was slain or had been slain, who is now standing. He's not standing in heaven at this moment that John is recording, but he's standing in a geographical location on the earth. He sees the lamb who is Jesus Christ standing on Mount Zion, which is a place inside of Israel, the promised land of Israel notice though in direct contrast to what we just read in 13 about the beast and the image and the forehead it says here that they have the father's name and the lamb's name written on their foreheads it's a sign of possession that they have been, they are owned okay they are the possession of god this is awesome because it's directly contrasting the dragon and the beasts Him being the counterfeiter, but this showing us that the Lamb is the authentic Son of God. Amen? Verse 2 continues and says this, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters. We've heard that phrase before throughout Revelation. It says, And like the sound of loud thunder, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Worship team members, look up at me for just a second. Just nod really, really lively at me if this is true. Has there ever been a difficult song in worship practice that was hard for everybody to learn? Yes? Okay. (laughs) I see heads nodding. It says no one could learn that song except for the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. It's a really interesting phrase, though, at the beginning. It says, singing a new song. Well, what does that mean? Actually, there's references all throughout the Psalms about singing a new song. And here's something significant. You may even hear my wife say it from time to time on the worship team or myself from time to time, sing a new song to the Lord. Because we know it's a biblical phrase. Every single time it shows up in Scripture, it communicates directly in context God's victory over His enemies. So the reason why you sing a new song that hadn't been sung before that you get to sing today is because the Lord healed you today of something you were sick of yesterday. Because he provided something you didn't have yesterday. That's how you can sing a new song to the Lord. That's the point. So here's something really awesome about what's going on. This 144,000 have not only... ...been in the throne room of God... ...but now they're actually doing things that are priestly and warrior-like... ...just like in the Psalms. So it's an expression of praise to God for His victory over His enemies. Verse 4 and 5. It's these, this 144,000 that's mentioned... ...who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes... These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits. And it says this for God and the lamb and in their mouth, no lie was found for they are blameless. There are some interesting phrases in here that have old Testament links. If they follow the lamb, wherever he goes, okay, they are following around in a serving role. They were in the throne room of heaven in revelation chapter seven And now they're accompanying him again. They have many attributes of priesthood or priestly nature. There's a term that shows up here. Another agricultural term at the bottom of the screen. And it says first fruits. Now this is a biblical concept from the Old Testament. Talking about an offering to the Lord. When I harvest my crop as a person who lived back in those days. I was to take the first fruits and bring it to the temple and offer it as a sacrifice to God. I wasn't supposed to wait until all the sheep were birthed for me to pick out which one came to God. I was to take the first. Listen to me. That's without, if it's lambing season, that's without me having any knowledge if the rest of those lambs will be healthy Or if my family will be provided for. It was a sign of faith. In a God who is the one. Who is in control of my life. It was a testament to him. That I trust you with this. People have asked about the tithe before. If you had ten ten dollar bills in your hand. A hundred dollars. They say well which one of those ten dollar bills is the tithe? It's the first one that leaves your hand. It shouldn't go to a bill. It should go to God. Because you're demonstrating, God, you are first in my life. He deserves the first and he deserves the best. So it's saying of this grouping of people, this 144,000 who are now in this priestly role, singing a song of worship, accompanying the Lamb wherever he goes, that they are the first fruits of the earth. This is pretty incredible. So God deserves the first and the best. It says they speak no lie and that they are blameless. No lie was found in their mouth and they are blameless. Paul tells the Ephesian church, the church at Ephesus, he says this, that Jesus is preparing his bride and he's looking, Ephesians chapter 5, you can read it on your own this week, and he's looking for a bride without spot or wrinkle. What he's communicating is that he is looking for a bride who is holy and blameless. There are other references to the Old Testament here that say that those who serve in the role of the priest in the Old Testament were to be men of integrity who spoke no lie. No lie was found in their mouth and that they were blameless. So there's something interesting there though because it calls them virgins Now, you can read five different commentaries about this and you'll get five different answers. So here's what I'm going to tell you. The basic consensus is this. Not necessarily that they had not been married, but that they were belief in their heart, they were believing virgins. In other words, they had not defiled themselves with any other god, followed any other thing besides God. You're going to hear another reference, because it's going to talk about Babylon in a minute, and it talks about her, Babylon is a city we know of historically, but it represents evil kingdoms, And it talks about those who followed her sexual idolatry or immorality. It gets singled out. So there's a comparison there, and it makes sense. The virginity there also can be viewed, this will take you down a rabbit hole. But if you're interested, you can read Genesis chapter 6 this week. Because these heavenly priesthood beings, people translated up there, the remnant. They have not done what was done in Genesis chapter 6. So, go read it, and you're like, Pastor, don't leave me hanging. Go read it. The priestly warriors, these 144,000, they obey the word of God, and they've not served any other God or disobeyed God's commands. So, um, there are commentaries that say the reason why it calls them virgins is because, as a person in the military back then in the Old Testament, you had to have days of purity before you went to the out to battle kind of thing and uh, all kinds of different options. But this one makes sense to me. So read Genesis six and check it out. Go to verse six of Revelation 14. And it says this, John, I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. To every nation tribe and language and people and he said with a loud voice fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and the springs of water so this is a warning of judgment to an unbelieving world there's something interesting to be noted It says, I saw another angel flying overhead. If you do some research, you'll actually come to find out. And I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, especially my two daughters sitting here. Besides cherubim and seraphim, which are two angelic creatures, and they're on the Ark of the Covenant, and there's some other Old Testament stuff with it. Every other occurrence of angel in the Old Testament or anywhere in Scripture, nowhere does it mention that they have wings kind of, it's like trivia that you could just add chalk up for later. Um, you can try to prove me wrong, but I'm promising you every single reference that talks outside of cherubim and seraphim, those two types, um, general angels, it doesn't say that they have wings. So the imagery that we have, um, we've created over a long period of time, and I'm not saying that they don't, I'm just saying that scripture doesn't clearly say that all of them do. What the idea is, is he's flying or hovering or stopped in a position where he is overhead, listen, of the whole earth. The entire earth can hear this eternal, the Bible calls it, John says, it's an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. Every nation will hear this, every tribe, every language, and every people, and it is a warning of judgment. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The sad news is they will not heed this warning and judgment will come. I also need to stop here just for a second and put this tiny little bug. I don't know why they say put a bug in your ear. It's weird. I don't want bugs in my ear. But let me put this little thought a seed in your head. Everything that we've gone through so far in Revelation, uh, if I had to go back, categorically speaking, it is not all entirely chronologically in order. So you cannot necessarily say Revelation 7 happens directly before Revelation 8 and so on and so forth. There, it, you take some discernment and you've got to have some understanding of how John wrote to be able to see this. This is not to say that Revelation 13 shouldn't have come before 14. I'm just telling you, did you know this? Your Bible is not chronologically correct in its placement. Look into the book of Jeremiah. Scribes helped put the book of Jeremiah together. And there are some random chapters that seem to reference historical events that are like, A hundred years different than the events that happened in the chapter before. That's not to say that the Bible should be doubted or that it's not true. It's just to say this specifically. Remember, John is having a revelation, a supernatural revelation. So for me to chronologically say, well, the dragon and the two beasts rise and then this happens. No, I've been in a dream before. (laughs) Okay, You've been in dreams before, right? It doesn't all happen chronologically according to everything in your life the way that you think it should. So it takes some discernment to understand that. That's just a little side note for you to remember and to think about. Because people want to build their end time system of thought, basing it on chapter 1 is step 1, chapter 2 is step 2. And all of these things happened in exact order. That is not always correct. Verse 8 says this, another angel. We're going to keep reading about these angels who come down and give these different uh, statements, some of which are warnings. Now, this is another interesting one. This angel, the second, follows the first and comes and says this, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the, the wine of the passion or the wine of wrath, of her sexual immorality. Now, this specifically has a physical connotation of the actual sin of infidelity and sexual immorality, but it also has a spiritual, uh, implication because there's a problem with this. If you think about history, Babylon has not been a thing for 550 years when John is writing, they'd been conquered five, over 500 years before Jesus was born. So how is this angel saying, Babylon, Babylon has fallen? How does this make sense? It only makes sense if you understand it to be both physical in nature and spiritual In fact, throughout the rest of scripture, even when Babylon isn't around, it's referenced because it's referencing the evil kingdoms of the world that are influenced by the dragon. So, there's this moment that will come to pass in our future that the great Babylon will fall finally and all wicked influence will be extinguished isn't that awesome? So Babylon is metaphorical in referring to any kingdom throughout Scripture, really, that oppressed the people of God. Um, Babylon is hated throughout Scripture in any of the prophets' writings because they conquered the people and destroyed the temple. The same thing happens during jesus's lifetime or during that era of time that jesus is around and born into because rome has taken over israel and rome is considered babylon to the people who are jewish that's it's not because they're same you know uh dna or anything it's because they have a spiritual dna babylon is still around today That spiritual DNA still exists in this world today. But one day, it will no longer oppress the people of God. Amen? So, this specific sin is singled out to communicate that all unbelievers have been unfaithful to God. That's what it's communicating. It can be communicating something physically, but it has that spiritual implication as well. This is a declaration of the end of things ...as they have, like the state of things... ...as they have been for millennia. This angel saying, fallen, fallen... ...because I'm telling you something good is about to happen. Verse 9 says this, another angel... ...John's just seeing them in rapid fire succession. Another angel, a third, followed them... ...saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast... ...now here is a warning. If anyone worships the beast from the last chapter... And its image receives the mark on his forehead or his hand or her hand or her forehead. If that happens, verse 10 says this. They will also drink the wine of God's wrath. Notice the phrasing. Poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented. Not God, but the the people who have taken the mark. That person, those people, will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. There's an interesting concept. Uh, actually, I was going to say it still exists from what I hear And that is, in order to reduce the strength of a drink that has an alcoholic nature, you are to add a few drops of water or more than a few drops of water. That's why there are certain cocktails they'll serve that have, you know, big cubes of ice or whatever. They melt in, they kind of mix with the drink. They reduce the strength or the pungent nature of it, you know, knocking you over. In the Old Testament, they were practicing things like this at the wine press. They made full strength wine, but then as they served it at dinners, and it wasn't like a huge celebration, maybe they were just having it at a regular time, they would mix it with a little bit of water because they wanted to reduce the strength of it. This phrase is important. Because God is communicating right now, there will be no lack or no smidge of me backing down from the vengeance that I'm about to bring. Because it will be poured out full strength, full potency. This is really, really, really stark. But good news is coming. Verse 12, it says this. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. I don't know if you remember this, but in chapter 13, something very similar was said. John is inserting his thought in that moment saying, listen, this is for you to pay attention to so that you endure and so that you live holy, that you keep the commandments of God and keep your faith in Jesus. Don't let it be shaken. Sure, you have days where you feel like you're rattled. But don't give up on God. He's not giving up on you. Amen? That should have been a louder amen if you want to get to lunch. Don't give up on God. Amen? Amen. So, John says, here's a call for the endurance of the saints. Verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, capital S, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So, in other words, there's no rest for the wicked, okay? But there is rest for those who have been righteous and the Spirit speaks in the future I want you to absorb this for a second. I know that if you've been here for any length of time, you know that we believe the Holy Spirit has not expired. He didn't evaporate and leave the earth. Okay, He is still here working through. In fact, he worked through one of us this last Sunday who then caused other people to come to Christ this past week. That's worth celebrating. Give God praise today. Come on, clap your hands. Wake up. It's good. It's good. I, I am so ecstatic about something like this because here is the very first instance in the entire book of Revelation that the Spirit says anything, and this is what he says, blessed indeed that they may rest from their labor for their deeds follow them. The Holy Spirit is still speaking in the future. That means he still has a role to play. Amen? Verse 14, then I looked and behold a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Verse 16, so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, in verse 14, all of those phrases that pop up are all Old Testament links and some New Testament links. I've talked to you in this series about the what we call cloud motif. That in the Old Testament, the prophet said, God is the rider of the clouds. He's the one that rides on the clouds of heaven. Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 24, in Mark chapter 16... And I don't remember exactly where in Luke, but he says it's recorded by each of those gospels. He says that the son of man will come on a cloud, on clouds of glory. So this has to be Jesus. He is the only one who so far right now in this chapter, in this portion of the vision, John is communicating to us who is seated, which means, (laughs) oh, hallelujah. It means he's at rest, It means he is rested from his work of redemption, that he's accomplished the cross, the empty tomb, and now he is seated in a place of authority. This is good news. And it says he's got a golden crown on his head. This signifies his authority and also a sharp sickle in his hand. There can be some confusion, but I don't want to confuse you if you're not confused. So let me just explain this very briefly to you. It says in verse 15, And another angel came out calling with a loud voice. And it seems to communicate that that angel is instructing Jesus who's seated on a cloud. That is not the case. If you really read it in the original language and you do some deeper Bible research, you'll understand the messenger is simply declaring out loud what's about to happen. He's not in charge of Jesus. He's not coming to tell Jesus what to do. He is declaring aloud for all to hear the son of God is about to reap the harvest. So the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Verse 16, so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Um, when things are ripened, you've got to harvest them quickly or else they will go from ripe to rotten, right? Um, anybody ever had a banana go bad in your house or tomato or something get all furry and weird on the counter? Then you understand. The point is this. God has determined the time in history, which has not yet appeared, it it has not yet happened to us, that he will say the earth is ripe and it's ready to go. Let's go. And when he does that, he's sending Jesus to come and reap the earth. So when Jesus comes, he has a dual role and that's to redeem and to judge. It's always been that way. The warnings earlier spoken should be seen for us as believers as encouragements to live holy and righteous and not be part of those that get caught up in the wrath portion. Verse 17. Here's another angel coming out of the temple this time. Pay attention to the location. Coming out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. Look it up in a Bible concordance or study it. There was this idea that different divine beings that were created by God had power over certain things. John is saying he sees the guy who's in charge of fire, who is either in charge of the fire at the altar where the incense goes up before God, or something a little bit deeper. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle and said, Put your sickle in and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Verse 20, and the wine press was trodden outside the city. This is an important detail. And then it goes from... Metaphorical, talking about grapes and wine, to very literal, and it says this, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle. That's pretty, that's pretty gruesome when you think about it. You say, well wait a second pastor, you made a big deal about the son of, the son of man image that was on the cloud, but you didn't say the same thing about the one with the sickle for the grapes. Listen, At the end, I'll read to you Revelation chapter 19. It says there's a rider on a white horse who is coming and he is the one who will tread these grapes of wrath. But then it communicates that these are not just grapes turning it into wine so God can have it at a party. This is punishment that is going to crush those who are the living unrighteous. Now... Isaiah 63 pictures God as a divine warrior whose clothes are stained with the blood of his enemies. This doesn't sound like the Bible story about, you know, oh, Jacob and Esau fought, or Ruth and Naomi, or... There's some really crazy imagery in the scripture, and in Isaiah 63, you can read about it later, it says that God is a magnificent warrior who is undefeated, and he wears clothes that are stained with the blood of those who have come against him. I'm telling you, he's still on the war path, but there's time for those who are going to be victims of his vengeance to switch sides. Because of the grace of Jesus and the work of the cross and the empty tomb. By God's grace, we believe there are three people who came from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light this past week. Amen? You can switch teams. Side note, this is for another message. You can switch back later. I know that flies in the face of some people's theology, but if I could switch the first time, I surely have the ability to switch a second. So don't switch. Stay put. Amen. All right. Got to move on. Revelation 19. We're almost done. You say, Pastor, oh my goodness, you're all the way in Revelation 19. Only these few verses. Okay. Verse 11 says this. John, at a different moment in the vision, says this. I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful, capital F, and True, capital T. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Verse 12, his eyes are like flames of fire. On his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. It says there in verse 13, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which He is called is the Word of God. Go read John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word of God. Amen? In fact, verse 14, it says this, "...and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linens, white and pure, signifying their holiness, they were following Him on other white horses." And verse 15, from his mouth a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written that obviously is visible to those who see him. And it is King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? So here's the good news. This is going to happen in the future. That's, that's point number one. Okay. These things are going to happen in the future. They haven't happened yet. So there's still time left. There's still time left for you to become a believer. There's still time left for your evil, wicked, no good mother in law, boss, friend, whatever, to Come to faith in Christ. There's still time. That's the greatest news out of all of this. Yes, God is full of justice. And he is coming to squash his enemies. But we still have moments given to us. Individually. Not just to pay a missionary to do it in far away Brazil. But for you to do it with your neighbor across the street. For you to do it in your job at your places that you frequent for you to share your faith in the victorious God who has never and shall never be defeated. Amen. This is good news. Most literally, he is the undefeated champion of the world. For years, the church, uh, has, it seems, uh, well, let me stop myself. The Holy Spirit helped me do that. Give the Holy Spirit a hand. That was good. That was really good. Not because I'm trying to get you to lunch or because I'm hungry, but I was going in a different direction. It's okay. Sometimes we have to stop and listen to the Holy Spirit. Uh, my wife is like, amen. You should do that at home. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> listen, maybe today the encouragement for you that could bring hope to you in your situation is that that victor who is on a war path against wickedness and evil is still victorious and he can help you get victory in your life he can save that friend or family member you've prayed for he can deliver from depression he can he can set free he can bring provision he is still a god who wants to provide victory to his people because vicariously we represent him So if all Christians are a bunch of losers who suffer from a bunch of stuff that never gets helped or figured out, then we of all people should be pitied. But we serve a mighty God. The Bible says that He is great and mighty, that He's never known defeat. So I take that to mean He hasn't known defeat. That He doesn't know defeat in my life, although I may have days where I feel defeated. I am not defeated, I love that old Daryl Evans song, Trading My Sorrows. I may feel pressed and crushed on every side, but I'm telling you what, I can trade my sorrow in and put it at the feet of Jesus and receive joy in return. What I sow in my spiritual life can produce benefits untold in this lifetime. And